profile of the UK's gypsy traveller population has recently become higher than any point probably since the 1960s. Why? Well, last winter saw the airing of My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding, which some of you may have watched, a frightening time reality television programme which became something of a hit and followed the fortunes of a number of gypsy traveller women as they prepared to get married. And then in the autumn of 2011, Dale Farm, a community of some 400 Irish travellers living on land on which they owned but did not have permission to live, were evicted and forced out onto the road. While these two events seem worlds apart, they were in fact, I think, united by a common understanding, one which put gypsy traveller communities outside mainstream society and separate from its social and cultural norms. My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding, while overtly sympathetic in giving voice to gypsy travellers, nevertheless presented, I think, an exoticised image of their lives, of all strong wagons, extravagant dresses and flamboyant wedding arrangements all served to create distance between gypsy travellers and settled society. And this is a voiceover from um, the uh, trailer that they used for the series. And much of the commentary around Dale Farm... Um, focused on how the residents had violated normal planning procedures to which the settled population always adhere, apparently. Media imagery centred on stereotypes often around criminality, social irresponsibility and deviance, with calls for residents to be gassed or burnt out not being uncommon. This comes out of a more general background of prejudice. A 2005 Maury poll found that gypsies and travellers were the group people were most likely to feel negatively towards in modern Britain, even more so than refugees and asylum seekers. So what can I, as a historian, understand of this? The presence of gypsy travellers within British society is well documented from at least the 15th century onwards. They're one of Britain's longest standing minority groups, and yet they face less acceptance and more prejudice than any other group, even the newest arrivals to the UK. In this paper, I want to do two things. Firstly, to unpick the stereotypes, both these romantic and negative ones, and consider how they've often mediated certain societies and the state's understanding of gypsy travellers. And then in the second part of the paper, I'm going on to explore how this has fed into the state's treatment of gypsy travellers, using examples from the welfare, housing and education systems in the post-war period. But broadly, what I'll be arguing is that while a course prejudice experienced by gypsy travellers is in many ways specific to their own community, it is also helpful if we consider their experiences in the light of that of migrants and other marginalised people within uh, British society more generally. Before going on any further, just a quick word about some of the terms I'm using, both notably Gypsy Traveller and Settled Society. Anyone writing about Britain's traditional travelling communities needs to deal with this thorny question of definition, which is not simply a matter of semantics. Individuals are still routinely moved on or discriminated against on the grounds that they're travellers or denied planning consent because they've lost their Gypsy status through being sedentary. Recent work has confirmed exactly how problematic it is to label Britain's travelling populations with meanings often heavily contested and not politically neutral. So my understanding um, is roughly that Gypsy relates to the ethnic groups whose origins lie broadly within the Indian diaspora, which happened from sort of roughly the 10th century, and subsequently mixed with other groups in the course of their gradual migration northwestwards into Europe by the 15th century, while Traveller, in the UK context at least, generally refers to groups who claim a predominantly indigenous European origin, but have traditionally been nomadic and self-employed. Thus, although there's been intermarriage between lots of different travelling communities in Britain and with settled society, English and Welsh groups with a tradition of nomadism are commonly described as gypsies, while Scots and Irish ones are seen as being travellers. And I can talk a bit more about that if people are interested. While these distinctions are helpful when discussing communities at a broad level, 
when attempting to construct their history using available evidence is much less useful. Writers are the sources that, that I've used rarely make such nice distinctions. Instead, they use the blanket term gypsy or deploy a range of labels to denote the pure-blooded or otherwise nature of the individuals under discussion. Consequently, I use the term gypsy traveller in order to refer to people who self-define as being part of the hereditary travelling populations of the British Isles. While this often means that both an individual's parents are of gypsy traveller origin, this is not exclusively the case, someone might have one gypsy traveller parent or non-gypsy traveller parent, but still live within and be seen as part of the culture. Equally, a gypsy or traveller doesn't cease to be so as a result of living in a house. While some have used house dwelling as a means of distancing themselves from their birth community, other individuals retain their links to wider, gy wider gypsy traveller culture and or maintain nomadic patterns of income generation but from a house base. So in contrast, I use the term gypsy to denote the racialised and romanticised image of gypsy travellers held by many writers whose work I discuss. This doesn't mean that some gypsy travellers don't self-define as gypsies, because many certainly do, but it's, I think, too loaded a term to use more gen generally in the course of the sources that I have available. And then similarly, I don't use the word, the only word, gorgia or gorgia, um, for non-travellers. So as a non-traveller, I feel that it's wrong to appropriate that word for my own use, but it also has kind of pejorative overtones of um, sort of contamination. Um, so I've adopted a more neutral term of settled society, which then leaves us with a problem that gypsy travellers are apparently defined by their nomadism and settled society by its sedentary nature, thus hiding both the fluid nature of settled society and the increasing tendency among gypsy travellers to settle. That's clear. It's therefore with the understanding that these labels always obscure more than that they reveal that I use these terms or else we can't talk about anything ever. Okay. So return now to the stereotypes I broadly identified at the start. Well, since the arrival of visible bands of Egyptians, as they were originally known in the early 16th century in Britain, there were images of them both as exotic strangers and as criminals. It wasn't really until the late 18th century that we see these, becoming, these stereotypes becoming entrenched in literature, newspapers, and popular discourse. This process is one we can tie more broadly to the increasing urbanisation of Britain's population, with the countryside over the course of the 19th century in particular becoming the repository for working out of social anxieties relating to the rapidly changing social and physical landscape. So along phenomena such as the folk song revival, the outdoors and early caravanning movement, which I can also talk a little more about, there emerged a movement of amateur gentlemen scholars who were self-styled gypsyologists, is the word that they use, who developed an interest in recording the origins, language and customs of Britain's gypsy travellers. Focused around the activities of the Gypsy Law Society, which was established in 1889, they became preoccupied with the foreign ancestry of Britain's gypsies and with developing theories around their purebred nature, which often tied pure bloodlines to Romany language use and proper nomadic living, which was always seen as innately rural and anti-modern. So as one gypsyologist, Arthur Simmons, who wrote in uh, 1908, why are we setting ourselves the impossible task of spoiling the gypsies? They stand for the will of freedom, for friendship with nature, for open air, for change in the sight of many lands. For all of us, that is in protest against progress. The gypsy represents nature before civilization. He is the last romance left in the world. The gypsy caravan, which actually only made its appearance really in Britain in the 1830s as a result of the improving road system, became central to the second society's image of the gypsy, in part through paintings such as by the prominent Gypsy Law Society member Augustus John. And fed by an outpouring of writings on the subject, 
um, from the 1850s onwards. Popular imagination saw gypsies as people who turned up out of the blue, camped on commons or byways in their bow-topped caravan, raised horses, sold pigs, perhaps tinkering, here today, gone tomorrow. I'm sure we're all quite familiar with that kind of stereotype. The idea that gypsies lived at one with nature was taken as given. Descriptions of them and their camp firmly locate them in rural settings, using imagery stressing their similarity to the animal kingdom. Here's one writer. They talk about, in summertime, these dusky wanderers might be seen encamped upon the commons or on the sprawling borders of some quiet road, beneath a sheltering hedge, as free as the wild bird, gliding about the solitudes of the land like half-tamed panthers. Panthers turn up quite a lot, actually. Um, for both the detractors as well as supporters of gypsies, their links to nature were uncontroversial, and such an innate part of their identity is to be unquestionable. Unsurprisingly, and here drawing on the work of Said and others who worked on Orientalism, Gypsy traveller women received particular attention from gypsyologists. In common with contemporaries who saw Indian or African women as closer to nature and therefore more sensual, images of gypsy women were often used to play out fantasies of uninhibited physical expression. Gypsy girls are always described as lithe and slender with flashing eyes like cats, tigers, or indeed panthers. Um, these descriptions carried with them the expectation that outdoor living inclined gypsy women towards a life of sexual promiscuity, and here we have obviously you know, the... Um, the heaving bosoms and the handkerchiefs and the towering necks and the sort of general idea of sensuousness. And yet, available evidence from the 19th century, um, in fact, even from the late 18th century, clearly shows that rather than gypsies being confined to the countryside, they, along with mainstream, the mainstream population they service, often was also becoming increasingly urbanised. Magazine and newspaper articles, often accompanied by engravings, writings by missionaries and urban explorers, as well as by gypsyologists themselves, all serve to reveal just what a permanent part of the urban landscape gypsy travellers were. Located in permanent sites in empty yards dotted around the cities, cheap lodging houses in the winter, and on the commons and waste grounds surrounding London and other cities, gypsy travellers lived and worked alongside the rest of Britain's growing and sprawling urban population. So these, that top picture there is quite a famous one. In fact, that's from uh, sort of the back of Notting Hill, these ones here, they look like they're in the middle of the countryside, but they're actually kind of one's Wanstead Common and one's sort of on the edge of Epping Forest, and there's quite, sort of quite a lot, sort of particularly around uh, the commons around London, where you've got pretty much permanent. So, how did gypsyologists manage to propagate the idea of gypsies as inherently rural and anti-modern, while at the same time seeing daily evidence of gypsy travellers in urban contexts, such as we see here? Well primarily through what we might think of as being an intellectual sleight of hand which constructed a theory around the decline in the racial purity of gypsies. Put simply, urban gypsies were not true gypsies, as they were seen to have increasingly mixed and married with degenerate members of the settled population. Of course, in the 19th century we've got lots of ideas around race, social Darwinism and the degeneration of you know, certain parts of the population, so it's sort of part of this sort of wider trend. Gypsyologists developed a racial hierarchy which placed pure-blooded gypsies who were believed to speak the best Romany at the top, who might also live in rural Wales or other isolated areas and pursue a range of traditional crafts, followed by Didikai's half-breeds or pikeys, groups with varying proportions of gypsy blood, depending on which source you read, and bumpers who were vagrants with no gypsy ancestry at the bottom. So David Mayle, who... Um, sort of wrote quite a seminal work on gypsy travellers in 19th century society, sort of, sort of, if you want to look at 19th century gypsy travellers, he's, he's the man for you, points out to confuse the true gypsy with his pos rats, which is another word for people of mixed blood, um, was presented as a grave error that led to much in injustice being directed 
towards the clean living Romany. The latter, declining in numbers as the century progressed, were superior in manners, morals, and occupations to their degenerate and impoverished monthly brothers. These half-breeds were said to have inherited all the vices of the Romany and the Gaucho, but none of their virtues. So for gypsyologists anxious to discover a golden age and a pure gypsy culture, this outlook allowed them to pursue pet theories with any contradictory findings dismissed as the result of cultural pollution and miscegenation. This enabled them to distance themselves from the urban encampments that existed all around Britain's major cities and any other elements that impinged on romantic notions of a <coughs> Just as the impetus to romanticise gypsies gained ground in the late 19th century, so too did negative stereotypes, as a growing body of opinions or gypsy travellers is out of step with modern society. Along with longer-standing beliefs about their lazy and lawless nature came newer concerns about their insanitary habits, which were seen as anachronistic in a nation which increasingly set store by its housing and sanitary legislation. Added to this were commonly expressed sentiments that they were escaping from paying taxes and consequently evaded the responsibilities that came with modern living. Throughout the 19th century, we see a succession of reformers, normally missionaries, anxious to bring gypsy travellers up to the standards of modern society. Probably the most prominent of these was George Smith Colville, who started out his reforming life uh, looking at children working in the brickyards, moved on to regulating canal boats before focusing his attention on the gypsy travellers, particularly those in London. He was motivated by a strong sense of outrage that they continued to exist in a Christian country and that they, by their very existence, threatened the constitutional right of citizens. So in one of his works he says... By travelling in vans, cars and tents, they escape the school board, sanitary officers, rent and rate collectors, and together they are, unthinkingly no doubt, undermining all our social privileges, civil rights, religious advantages, and will, if encouraged by us, bring decay to the roots. So along with many of his contemporaries, he continually equated physical deprivation and dirt with moral decay and eternal damnation, which was kind of a common theme that missionaries um, propagated anyway. And tapping into Victorian sentimentality, he portrayed the children as poor innocent victims, and whereas the gypsy adults were evil sort of devil and monsters generally. But this was balanced by his belief that all could be saved given opportunities and guidance. As he says, the, gy- the, the gypsies and their children are dark and down, and to whiten them and to raise them, the law and the gospel must come in. In his eyes, travellers were not eternally condemned to a nomadic life simply through their race, and through his work, he aimed to force them to enjoy the benefits of civilization. He argued it was both possible and vital for reforms to be introduced that would elevate our gypsies and their children into a position that will reflect credit instead of disgrace to us as a civilized nation. While his successive attempts at passing movable dwellings legislation, those were like, I don't know, 30 different attempts over the course of a similar number of years, weren't successful, his efforts set the tone for the 20th century. The overt Christian emphasis may have moderated over time, but the underlying sentiments did not. As planning and sanitary legislation began to control not only where one might live, but also how one might live, gypsy travellers, with their untidy camping grounds, use of caravans, tents and assorted dwellings, without running water or modern sanitation, increasingly became legally questionable as well as socially distinct from the mainstream population. For their detractors, it was an easy step from decrying living standards and violation of planning controls to attaching to gypsy travellers accusations of criminality, violence and deviance. So, taking together these romantic and negative stereotypes, what does this give us? As the Times put it in 1952, they were seen as both a perennial mystery and an astounding anachronism. Put simply, while there may somewhere be a true gypsy, they didn't exist in urban areas, or perhaps even in the modern world, 
And here we can see, I'll leave you to read this in your own time, um, satirised by Ewan McCollum and Peggy Seeger, who wrote this song as part of a, the radio ballad series that they did in the mid-60s. Um, the Gypsy's a gentleman who's basically um, terribly rural and terribly nice, but doesn't actually exist in any way to upset people. Okay. This, I believe, is really important, because such attitudes did not stay in the pages of books or even newspapers. Rather, in the absence of information, government departments and civil servants relied on the work of gypsyologists and their own prejudices to inform policy decisions at all levels. I mean, part of the problem is that because the British state didn't make any, um, they didn't dis distinguish between gypsy traps and the rest of the population, we don't have any separate statistics for them, so we don't know how many there were. And even something like in, uh, during the Second World War, they were given the same ration cards as other. Um, commercial travellers, for example. So unlike the rest of Europe, where we actually have got sort of fairly good numbers, uh, idea of numbers, in the UK we don't because they weren't seen as being separate from the mainstream population. So if we turn now to the post-1945 period, one which saw a growing crisis in stopping places for gypsy travellers and increasing tensions between them and settled society. Fueled both by post-war urban reconstruction and the massive house-building programme on the one hand, and tighter planning controls, primarily brought about by the 1947 Town Country Planning Act, the shortage of stopping places was initially masked by the growing motorisation of gypsy travellers, so they were able to stay in one place for longer and travel further from the same base and they didn't have to move on grazing their, their horses. But by the mid-50s, from across the country, there were reports of evictions and conflict between residents of long-established sites and a wider population, because one of the problems with there being a shortage of sites is people stayed in one place for much longer whilst they travelled further. It sort of worked for them, but it increased uh, tension between them and the rest of the population. And yet central government, for a range of reasons, continued to insist that, we're, that this, what was blatantly a national problem, was in fact a series of localised issues. Its stance was bolstered by the use of racialised and spurious definitions of gypsies, which allowed civil servants to be seen as sympathetic to true gypsies, who didn't require government attention, whilst dealing with racially impure didicais and other travellers who didn't deserve separate consideration, but instead could be uh, subsumed in the wider caravan and housing problems. Rather than examining the structural reasons behind repeated evictions, officials dismissed their importance by denying that they involved true gypsies. So we've got a couple of quotes here from um, civil servant files from the 1950s. The first one here, um, from time to time there are articles in the press and questions in the House about gypsies being evicted. In all these cases the people are referred to as gypsies, though the Romany element seems to have been diluted with Irish tinkers in Cardiff and scrap metal dealers in <coughs> Hill. Officials who worked on the, uh, the Kent survey where there was a, a particular concentration of problems and so there was some research done, similarly agreed that the gypsies proper were a very small part of the itinerant population and they generally remain in the country in a very little trouble to anyone. And so we have this quotation here, it's essentially these people's uh, right to be seen as uh, gypsy travellers is based on whether they're actually living in you know, proper boat-topped caravans and what, how are they actually learning, learning their living? Are they selling pegs or are they doing something dreadful like scrap metal dealing? Concentrating on the living style and economic occupation allowed government departments to suggest that anyone affected by the 1947 Town and Planning Act wasn't a gypsy at all, but rather people without any special claim who choose to live a way of life which doesn't harmonise with the local pattern. And so the Town and Country Planning Act, as one of the 
civil servants argued, leaves the gypsies free to go on using all their old camping grounds, both the permanent ones and ones which are used for part of the year. They can also, like other campers, camp freely on any new site for a period of 28 days in any one year. Only if they want to stay longer in the new site is it necessary for them to apply for planning permission. There's nothing in the Planning Act to interfere substantially with the gypsies' way of life. But this attitude didn't take account of travellers' long-held preference for remaining stationary during the winter, nor newer difficulties for the growing shortage of appropriate places to stop. It implied that real gypsies wouldn't wish to be stationary and that anyone wishing to have a long-term park-up was not a true gypsy and therefore could be dealt with through the provision of housing in the fullness of time. So I think by the mid-20th century, we can see that gypsy travellers are positioned as outsiders. Those who were deemed as true gypsies are seen as being separate from modern society and aloof from their concerns because they're closer to nature and, you know, apart from civilization. All the other travellers were Ill illegitimate and by definition a problem best regulated out of existence and therefore seen as being deviant and separate from mainstream society. So, given their precarious status, how then might we expect them to be treated in the context of the newly expanded welfare state which followed the end of the Second World War? While the welfare state constructed in the 1940s had many novel features, we need to understand how it also carried with it a strong historical legacy. Britain's welfare system, along with that of most of Western Europe in the early modern period, was based on the notion of belonging. The old poor law of uh, 1602 was organised around the parish and the, and the tax on local ratepayers. The subsequent 1662 Settlement Act allowed relief only if established, only to establish residence of a parish, mainly through birth, marriage, or apprenticeship. And paupers unable to prove their residence were removed to the parish of their birth. While the new poor law in the 19th century no longer insisted on removal to place of birth, those deemed by the relieving officer to be vagrant rather than unemployed were placed in the casual ward overnight rather than the main workhouse and subjected to rigorous work before being released the next morning and told to go on their way. As the functions of the state expanded in the 19th and 20th century, so too did notions of belonging, both in terms of geographical area from the parish to the district to the nation, and in terms of the idea of belonging acquiring new layers of meaning. So, the idea of residency being a key factor in accessing certain services was retained in the new welfare state through, for example, the common requirement of having to live for at least six months in a local authority area before being able to qualify for entry onto a council housing list. At the same time, from the interwar period onwards, we start seeing debates over the respective rights of British and Commonwealth citizens to poor law and local authority support. And although I won't go into it here, and if it's of interest I can talk about it later, the status of Irish free state migrants um, in the 1920s and 1930s in relation to poor law brings up some very interesting issues around citizenship and entitlement to poor law and other state services. It's something else I've been doing some work on. And of course, after 1945, with the passing of the various nationality acts, attempts to control immigration and welfare entitlements became an active part of the political agenda. Right up to contemporary debates over asylum seekers' position in British society and European workers' rights to benefits from the context of expansion of the EU, we've seen the issue of welfare entitlement and citizenship becoming ever more closely tied together. So the notion of you belong to a certain place, which is now defined as the nation rather than the parish, being opening the door to certain entitlements from the state. While we must clearly pay attention to the issue of formal belonging by citizenship, this doesn't mean we should ignore or downplay other ways in which belonging and entitlement were increasingly articulated across the 20th century. Although it is now taken for granted, the introduction of the 1911 National Insurance Act introduced a new form of entitlement and therefore social belonging. Prior to this, paupers were not expected to contribute to the common purpose. 
In fact, the aim of legislation up to this point had been to reduce the burden on the ratepayer. Now, with the idea of insurance contributions, came the idea of certain benefits being earned and tied to active participation in the workforce. Welcomed as a means of reducing the reach of the poor law and allowing the unemployed to receive support without losing the right to vote and facing social stigma, it nevertheless set up a system which was exclusionary in its own way. Inherent in the creation of universal benefits after 1945, which was based primarily on work-based insurance contributions, was the marginalisation of both the wageless and those who operated within the informal economy. While people were encouraged to view benefits based on national insurance contributions as their right, means-tested benefits funded through general taxation had a certain and increasing stigma attached to them. Through the passing of the 1948 National Insurance Act, gypsy travellers were structurally disadvantaged along with the majority of women, the civilian disabled and anyone else who was unable to engage in full-term, full-time, long-term employment. They were effectively being denied full and equal citizenship. Social citizenship, the automatic right to social security, had to be earned through insurance contributions. Therefore, Rodney Lowe argues, there was a permanent emphasis on the danger of scrounging and that once on supplementary benefit, um, the unemployed were treated with suspicion. However, the rights of gypsy travellers to receive these increased benefits created by the welfare state wasn't simply questioned on the basis of their lack of national insurance contributions. Had it been so, they would simply have joined the ranks of those who found themselves on national assistance. Instead, the older stereotypes of gypsy travellers as social failures and deviants combined with these new ideas of social citizenship to, tra- to label them as less worthy of relief and more in need of the civilising benefits of such aid. So, for example, in 1946, the appointed assistance officer, who's a person who deals with welfare of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, stated that the travellers were less trustworthy than non-traveller members of the community, saying, if a member of a tinker community asks for relief, it is desirable not to give it without full inquiry. If it became known it was easy to obtain relief, the number of applications might become more numerous. Officials assumed, with little or no supporting evidence, that travellers were inherently deceitful and less entitled to relief. This attitude can be found running through the practices of the National Assistance Board right through the 1950s. It had the habit of making deductions to national assistance simply on the basis that work was known to be available in the area, or on the grounds that travellers were entitled to less relief because they had a lower standard of living, or thirdly, because they were earning money and not declaring it. And so we've got an example here, McPhee, who we see is both disabled and dirty. Um, and part of the notorious Tinker family. It would appear from this and other evidence I found from the archives that the practice of making what were called automatic regulation three deductions was widespread throughout Scotland in the mid and late 1950s. As the area officer for our growth reasoned, there can be no doubt that there are undisclosed resources in most cases. A number of them have ancient cars in which they move around while our allowances are largely disposed of in the nearest bar that sells wine. No injustice would be allowed, would be done, if allowances were withheld from all but the oldest and exceptionally those with large families of very young children. These statements make it clear that local agencies attempted to use the new welfare state to push travellers into a more regularised and settled lifestyle. It also shows that they were willing to do this in a punitive way, by removing relief and benefits, rather than in a positive or proactive manner. This example picks up on a final layer of meaning of belonging acquired during this period, one which tied it to active citizenship. Often articulated in relation to participation in the war effort, it may also 
it might also take on the guise of the good or responsible citizen. And T.H. Marshall, who was one of the leading writers on kind of like welfare statements, the theory of the 40s and 50s, argued, citizenship is a status bestowed on those who are full members of the community, or possess the status are equal with respect to the rights and duties with which the state is endowed. Citizenship requires a bond, a direct sense of community membership. If citizenship is invoked in defence of rights, the corresponding duties of citizenship cannot be ignored, and he goes on then to list these, which include the duty to pay taxes, insurance contributions, education, military service. The other duties are vague and are included in the general obligation to live the life of a good citizen. And the paramount of importance is the duty to work. And these are attached to the status of citizenship. This idea of citizenship therefore implied a contract in which, in return for the guarantee of equal status and access to the now considerable benefits and services, the citizen was expected to participate fully in the economic and civic life of the community. While not all of the population clearly subscribed to this definition of citizenship, there did emerge a popular sense that along with the whole, the welfare state had been won through the active participation of the people. The reverse side of this was that those who were not perceived as having pulled their weight were vilified and marginalised. Such an argument has in fact retained a very powerful legacy. Some of you may be um, familiar with Dent Cameron Young's recent uh, consideration of the New East End in which we find what I believe to be a very insidious argument that the residents, the residents with Bangladeshi origins or heritage have a smaller moral claim on council housing than the white working class local population who are seen the shouldered as having the worst of the blitz and fully engaged in the war effort. What we might term kind of the assumption of an indigenous entitlement to welfare here. The role taken by travellers during the war in the public mind was at best viewed as ambiguous and at worst as positively hindering the efforts of the majority. The implication this had for the post-war era, era was profound. Added to traditional stereotypes of travellers as antisocial was the new feeling they'd undermined the interests of Britain in this time of need. I can talk more about their role in the Second World War, if that's something that interests people. However, to those engaged in the task of reconstruction, participation in the war effort was only one small part of the new wider definition of a citizen. As Marshall had stated, duties to which the citizen should subscribe included general exhortations to good conduct and promoting the wider welfare of the community. <coughs> One way in which travel lifestyles could conflict with that was in the area of planning and environmental control. And I've already mentioned briefly the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, which besides creating green belts, national parks and strict planning regulations, it was kind of it had been sort of generated by the idea, the sort of the broader ideal that the nation had a right to a clean and regulated urban environment and access to unsport countryside. And as David Mathis has argued, while particular types of conduct in the country were held to promote good citizenship via mental, moral, physical and spiritual health, others signified a lack of citizenship. Citizenship became defined in relation to anti-citizenship, represented by those members of public whose behaviour didn't live up to environmental standards. It depended on the identification of an un unworthy, degenerate residuum for its self-definition. The creation of an inclusive nation, therefore, rested, in the short term at least, upon exclusion. So the new environmental residuum, we want to think of it like that, didn't merely include the urban-minded tourists who dropped litter and played loud music, but also those who threatened the landscape with their hideous settlements in the form of plotland shacks, bungalows, and inappropriately placed caravans. Beyond their dislike of badly sized caravans, planners and bureaucrats believed that the very existence of movable dwellings perpetuated substandard housing and therefore undermined their efforts to create an orderly environment. So travellers not only failed to become tidy regulated citizens, but they also undermined the notion of the participatory citizen, which demanded education in all aspects for good citizenship as essential for its success. 
and so this is Marshall again, civil rights are designed to be used by reasonable and intelligent persons who have learned to read and write. Political democracy needs an educated electorate, and scientific manufacture needs educated workers and technicians. The duty to improve and civilise oneself is therefore a social duty and not merely a personal one. Schooling of gypsy travellers under the 1944 Education Act must therefore be seen not only in the light of extending secondary school education to all, but also as the means to create good citizens. It was not sufficient for a government to lead, but the individual, through participation in civil society, must also actively follow. Given the failure of gypsy travellers then to match up to the new and exacting standards required of citizens in the New Britain, their relationship with the welfare state in all its forms is clearly problematic. While the ideas espoused by Marshall and others concerning notions of reciprocity and duty were largely just ideals, and one which many second members of society also did not meet, they did form important guiding principles for those conceiving and implementing the new services. So, by the mid-20th century, the idea of belonging and entitlement, I believe, to state benefits and support was tied up to three often interconnected factors, residency and citizenship, either with residence and citizenship in terms of a, of a locale or the nation, personal financial con con contribution through national insurance, and a less tangible but no less important idea of the good or active citizen. Thinking about the welfare state in these terms, I believe, is one way of moving away from stereotypes about the place of gypsy travellers in British society, while at the same time being alive to the roles played by those stereotypes in mediating their relationship with the welfare system. It also allows us to see gypsies not as exotic outsiders in a category of their own, but as a marginalised group alongside other marginal groups, including, as I will go on to show, new migrants in Britain. In doing this, I'm in part building on the work of the Dutch scholars Leo Lucas and Wim Willems and Anne-Marie Cotard, who've been at the forefront of rethinking how gypsy travellers should be understood in European history. To this end, they have suggested they should be seen as uh, part, this is they being gypsy travellers rather than Lucas and Marie Cotard, um, should be seen as part of a wider body of migrants who've been an essential part of Europe's social and economic fabric since the late Middle Ages. One of the ways in which their thinking has been useful is to look at how the states have labelled and dealt with all those who they consider to be outsiders, most notably, most notably in the area of poor relief and welfare, where belonging to a locality was a crucial factor in being able to access support. By arguing for understanding the links between gypsies and other itinerant, itinerant groups, migrants and aliens, we can open up understandings of how, within the expansion of the nation-state, citizens were granted more rights, and thus it became more important to define who belonged to a state and had access to its resources and who did not. So if I turn now finally to a couple of examples <coughs> to show how this was played out in the context of post-war Britain, we can see how both the exotic and negative stereotypes that I've outlined were deployed against gypsy travellers by various levels of the state in considerations over housing and education provision. At the same time, these were intrinsically bound up with notions of them as outsiders, of not belonging, and consequently having no rights to common resources accessed by the local community. Always inherent in debates over whether or not to extend normal welfare rights to gypsy travellers was a tension. It was accepted that extending these benefits to them was the best means of assimilating them into the wider population. Yet there was also a strong feeling they didn't have the rights to those benefits, or if they did, only at a lower level than that of the local population. Throughout, this tension interacted with essentialised stereotypes which positioned gypsy travellers as inherently deviant or even genetically incapable of being improved by the interventions being proposed. So these tensions were particularly present in debates over housing. And here we've got one of the upbeat messages from the press. This is from 1960, from Scotland. 
we have sort of when you're going through the archives you find these kind of like oh look here's some house gypsies aren't they terribly happy now that they're living in a proper house kind of stories so this is one of them but housing I think has to be understood not as providing accommodation for the homeless but rather as a tool for solving long term social embarrassment whereas the excuse often used for not providing authorised stopping places for gypsy travellers was, was that they didn't really want them this reason was rarely used in the housing debate Generally, the reluctance of gypsy travellers to be settled in houses was seen as further of confirmation of their need to relinquish their nomadic lifestyle and become more socialised. This did not mean that central and local government were consistent in their attempts to house travellers, but rather only instigated schemes where it proved possible or convenient. The post-war period was littered with contradictions, but every statement to the effect that steps should be taken to compel gypsies to settle in permanent dwellings and share the responsibilities of modern civilization. There was one that assumed gypsy travellers continued to exist beyond the remit of local authorities. When councils did instigate schemes, behind inevitable differences in detail between localities lay consistent themes and patterns based on the presumption that gypsy travellers should become integrated into wider society. At the same time, these policies displayed an unwillingness to either extend to them the full benefits of the welfare state or to allow them full and equal contact with settled society. The ultimate aim was to render gypsy travellers invisible through assimilation, but without contaminating, and that's a word that's used, or disadvantaging the rest of the population. <coughs> These attitudes made their impact in one of two ways. The first and most common response was that gypsy travellers were completely undeserving of limited resources of the council and were therefore ignored or moved on as soon as possible. Councils, however, which did make some move towards housing their gypsy travel population, were caught up in the ambivalence generated by a desire to make gypsy travellers normal members of society on one hand, and unwillingness to accept that they had the same claims on common resources as the rest of the population. The post-war shortages, especially of building materials and housing, brought into focus the competing priorities of local authorities. For example, although New Forest Council was one of the few areas to have a concerted gypsy traveller housing policy, it still believed that housing them in its words, should be put in the context of housing demand, arguing how all local authorities are under constant and severe pressure from substantial and growing waiting lists. Consequently, the second response was to accept that, in the interest of removing the blocks gypsy travellers left on society, services should be provided, but to a lower standard. In many cases, this, is, this was manifested through the medium what was called simplified housing, such accommodation was designed to act as a stepping stone. They were basically kind of huts with sort of internal divisions within them. Such accommodation was designed to act as a stepping stone from which gypsy travellers could graduate into council accommodation and ultimately merge with the rest of the community. These lower quality services were expected to result in the full and equal socialisation of gypsy travellers, with, with blame for any failure being placed at the door of the travellers themselves. One of the key aims of the policy was to ensure that they were not evading the duties as well as the benefits associated with the welfare state. As argued by one of the welfare officials involved in the resettlement scheme of the New Forest Gypsy Traveller population, who went on to say, whilst it cannot be denied that a large number of them are extremely poor, a certain percentage seem to be rather more affluent. By their present mode of living, the more affluent ones can more easily evade such matters as national health insurance contributions, income tax, etc., and some, at least, choose their present way of life for this reason, which may deter them from accepting housing should it be offered. There are parallels here with other groups in settled society. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, 
uh, families which were designated problem families by local welfare services in many districts could find themselves placed in condemned housing or other accommodation seen as unsuitable for the ordinary tenants, where under guidance they could learn to raise their standard of housekeeping. So new Commonwealth migrants also found that such tenancies might be their only option. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, it was common for local authorities to refuse to house black immigrants. Sheila Patterson's work found that there were few black family council tenancies, with the Mayor of Lambeth boasting that only six West Indian families had been rehoused. And this was in the worst type of requisition of property because no one else would take it. Joanna Burke notes that such dis discrimination was very effective. For in the 1960s, only 6% of the black overseas born population was accommodated in the council house sector, compared with approximately one third of English and Irish born populations. Other commentators writing about the response of gypsy travellers to their accommodation, this tendency was to blame them rather than their environment for their living conditions. I'll move on now to consider the experience of gypsy travellers within the education system. At first glance, it appears that the difficulties they experienced within it were the result of their own cultural practices, specifically their nomadism and parental attitudes. Evidence from the time placed particular emphasis on the children's irregularity of attendance and leading to them quotes, forming an appreciable quota of the several retarded classes in these schools. One head teacher believed, a habit which might appear as a harmless and picturesque custom, as in nomadism, has in fact thrown an unwarranted and unfair burden on the schools, retarded directly the educational development of the children concerned, affected the whole balance of school organisation, and set an evil example in defiance of regulation, low standards of attainment, and a failure to respond to social training. These concerns were reflected in the attitude of education authorities and the inspectorate. In cases where gypsy travellers were relatively numerous, they recommended a policy of dispersal of small groups over several schools to prevent a concentration of the problem and an undue preponderance in one school. In Kent, for example, one inspector believed that a consistent policy of rehousing should be pursued to reduce the number of nomadic families and to spread their impact. He further felt that where sites were provided, they should be kept small to prevent gypsy traveller children from swamping local schools. And that would also have the additional benefit, he believed, of allowing them to learn a more conventional way of living. While it is important to acknowledge the specificity of traveller experiences of education, they can be fruitfully understood, I believe, as part of a continuum of poor educational experiences rather than a complete aberration. McCulloch has argued convincingly that, particularly after the age of 11, most children's education was determined by their class rather than their ability with the consequence that working-class children were concentrated in the poorest schools with limited facilities, curriculum, and exam opportunities. The 3,500 secondary modern schools in England and Wales catered for approximately three-quarters of children aged 11 to 15. Yet in 1956, the secondary modern inspectorate were only able to identify 140 that were worth a second glance. The majority of schools which Gypsy Traveller and other ethnic minority children attended, therefore, existed in a world of scarce resources and limited educational horizons. If there was a, pri a, a pyramid of privilege that saw the mass of working, of working class children near the base, then children from minority backgrounds were at the very bottom. Ian Grosvenor's work has demonstrated how educational policy complemented the state's construction of black people as a problem with black pupils consistently being represented as taking resources away from white pupils and threatening their educational opportunities. Central to official thinking in the 1950s and 1960s was the presumption that migrant success in Britain would be determined by the abandonment of their culture, traditions and values and the acceptance of a British way of life. 
there were concerns about large concentrations of immigrant children in particular schools or classes. Circular 765, for example, asserted that the task of education was the successful assimilation of immigrant children, but warned that the chances of assimilation were more remote as the proportion of immigrant children in a school or class increased. Up to a fifth of immigrant children in any group fit with reasonable ease, but if that proportion goes over about one third, either in the school as a whole or in any one class, serious strains arise. Where it was impossible to redraw catchment areas, as happened in a number of cases, due to a school's location in an inner city area where there was a high proportion of immigrant children, every effort should be made to disperse the immigrant children round a greater number of schools, primarily through what became known as the busing pupils out of schools. It's something that Birmingham was um, particularly notorious for. Grosvenor noticed notes that local authorities reassured non-immigrant parents that the progress of their children would not be restricted by undue preoccupation of the teaching staff with the linguistic and other difficulties of immigrant children. But the circular was deafeningly silent on any benefits that would accrue to black parents or indeed their pupils where the policy of dispersal was adopted. The policy was not conducted on the grounds of educational need, as children were dispersed irrespective of whether or not they were immigrants, irrespective of whether they had any language difficulties or not. The children were dispersed solely on the basis of colour. Black students were perceived both as being intrinsically a problem and a problem owing to their expected negative impact on the performance of white children. The same concerns can be found in relation to the presence of gypsy traveller children in schools, as is indicated by the writer of the report on the impact of them in Hampshire schools. The parents of children attending the elementary schools resent the fact that their children have to be in close contact with the gypsy children. Their influence is bad, even where their numbers are small in comparison to other children. And in one school, the number of gypsy children roughly equals or exceeds the number of other children attending that school. In addition to the tension between a desire for assimilation and a concern over the negative impact on the education of white pupils, studies have revealed an inclination to blame minority cultures for any failure to perform adequately viewing their experience as a result of cultural pathology rather than any limitations within the state system. For gypsy travellers, as we have seen, the blame was based on nomadism and the lack of parental support, while Asian parents pupils were seen to fail either because their while Asian pupils were seen to fail because their mothers were too passive and stayed at home, Afro-Caribbean pupils were seen to fail because their mothers were too assertive and went out to work. Hence African Caribbean children were labelled from the outset as underachievers and segregated within schools into lower streams or teaching bands, or were declared educationally subnormal and placed in special classes or separate schools on this basis. The experience of gypsy traveller children, therefore, fits into a more general pattern of marginalisation of minority children, but they too were depicted as a problem and underachievers, seen as a threat when too numerous in class, and their parents and family background were blamed for their failure to assimilate into a classroom setting. Positioned as outsiders with weak claims of belonging, they were seen as having little claim on the resources of the local education authorities. So, briefly to conclude, I've argued for the importance of acknowledging the role of stereotypes constructed and perpetuated by settled society, both exoticising and vilifying, in informing how gypsy travellers have been understood, or perhaps rather misunderstood, across history. Positioned as inherently rural, exotic and out of place in the modern world, their continued existence has been constructed as inherently problematic. Gypsies are seen as having no place in British society, except perhaps as curiosity, while other travellers, however they are described, were and are seen as a social problem needing to be dealt with. As the role of the state expanded over the 19th and 20th centuries, so too did the meanings attached to the idea of belonging. 
Claims of residents in a particular locale reclaimed their importance, but expanded from the parochial level to that of the nation state. The idea of financial contributions became an important factor, as did the more nebulous idea of social responsibility and good citizenship. All of these served to position gypsy travellers ever more firmly as outsiders, with weak claims on the state. Consequently, with the expansion of the welfare state, what we find is that its measures were all too often either withheld from gypsy travellers or only extending, extended to them in a grudging, punitive and partial <coughs> manner. When we compare their experiences to that of other minority groups, we can see how their experiences, both historical and contemporary, find connections and resonances. Instead of focusing on the supposed pathology of minorities, it allows us to go some way to understand how the state and majority society seeks to pathologise others.